So, good evening and welcome to the end of your first full day of retreat. So in the Dharma talk tonight, I wanted to give you some information, some context for the practices that we've been doing so far here. And then later on this evening, because tonight is New Year's Eve, we're going to come back at 8.15 and have an opportunity just to reflect on what's traditionally a time of transition. And we'll be able to do some practices together to continue our overall retreat theme of healing the heart, refining the mind, and finding freedom. So tonight I wanted to talk a little bit more about what we sometimes call the retreat container. And that means the structure of the retreat that supports our capacity to deepen our Dharma practice individually and collectively. And there are a few different aspects to this retreat container. One is the schedule that we're all following. The rhythm of sitting and walking and daily activities that's consistent every day. And that's so that we can just relax and surrender into that structure without getting caught up and thinking, oh, what shall I do now? Should I do this? Should I do that? Maybe I'll do something else altogether. It takes away the need to make choices. And in that simplicity, we can all be together on the same page. So there's a simplicity, a cohesiveness, and that can support us to go deeper in our practice. And I like to emphasize that what we're doing here is a group practice. Because again, in our dominant mainstream culture, there's so much emphasis on individuality. And because here we're not talking to each other, we're not interacting in our usual ways, from the outside it might look as if we're all alone and we're each doing our own thing. We might even actually like to believe that we're independent and separate. But in fact, what we do here, how we show up, the energy and the effort that we bring to this practice, it has an effect on all of us. So each of us is contributing to this retreat in our own way, contributing to this retreat container that we're constructing together. So in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I'm from, the Maori people have a tradition of weaving beautiful flax baskets known as kete. Some of you may be familiar with them. I think many Aboriginal communities have a similar beautiful weaving woven baskets. And in Maori culture, the finest of these kete, they're used to keep treasures in, our treasures, our taonga, And so in a way, what we're doing here together is weaving a basket, a kete, to deepen the treasure of our hearts in, the treasure of wisdom and compassion. So every one of you is a strand of that woven basket, and together we create the strength, the integrity of the basket. So we have these outer supports of the retreat schedule. We have the presence of each other. There are also a lot of inner supports that we can develop a little more fully to make them into resources. And these are resources that I've 
tuned into in my own retreat practice over many years. And by coincidence, there are six qualities that I like to highlight, and all of them begin with the letter S. So I get lots of practice at trying not to lisp when I give this talk. So these six qualities are safety, silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, and stillness. And when we hear that list, they might sound quite simple, maybe even obvious, but when we take all of them together and consciously orient to them, they can provide the optimum conditions for the deepening of our insight. So the first one, safety, in some ways might seem obvious. I mentioned it last night with the invitation to commit to the five ethical training precepts. And safety is aligned with the concept of refuge, which in the Buddha's teachings is a very important concept. And we can think of refuge as a kind of sanctuary that protects us from danger. So in this context, safety comes from this shared commitment to non-harming. That commitment that we took last night by committing to not killing living beings not taking what is not freely offered, not misusing our sexual energy in ways that are harmful, not speaking falsely, telling lies, and not indulging in intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So these five ethical precepts are not just a formula that we recite at the start of a retreat because it's traditional. They have an impact, they have an effect And a few years ago, when I was living in the U.S., I spent time volunteering at a nearby prison. So every Sunday for four years, me and a couple of colleagues would go and offer meditation practice and teachings to the men. And so I got to spend two, three, four hours every week in an environment that was the polar opposite of the meditation center where I was living. Because in the prison setting, Most of the men, I think it would be fair to say, are not committed to keeping the precepts. Some of them, actually the opposite. And I got to experience firsthand what it's like to spend time, even if it was just a few hours, in an environment where there isn't that orientation to kindness, to compassion, to safety. And I could feel the effects on the heart, the mind, the psyche. So we're very fortunate here to be in an environment where we are all contributing to this sense of safety. So traditionally we talk about taking refuge, but refuge is also something that we give. It's a two-way interaction. And as I briefly mentioned last night in the Buddha's discourses, he described these five ethical training precepts as being gifts, great gifts that we give to the world. But again, those gifts are not just one way. He described this as the gift of fearlessness. We give fearlessness to others through our commitment to non-harming. But as I briefly mentioned, we ourselves receive fearlessness because we don't have to be afraid of being caught out or punished or blamed. So we live 
in a climate of fearlessness. And in many of the centers that I teach at, not only are they a sanctuary in terms of uh, meditation practice, many of them are also literally wildlife sanctuaries. And here too we have the benefit of being close to the bush, to the wild creatures that are all around us. And I wonder sometimes if those creatures can actually feel, sense into the energy that comes from being around humans who are committed to non-harming. Certainly at uh, the center that I spend time at in the U.S., the Insight Meditation Society, there are all kinds of creatures that just stroll through the grounds. Deer and wild turkeys and chipmunks and skunks and groundhogs. Even apparently a friend of mine saw a moose. Um, Privately I'm quite pleased I didn't run into a moose in the woods. But it just gives you a sense of how I believe that animals are attracted to this sense of safety. And because of that, we can get to know them a little better, even ones that we might not necessarily normally be drawn to. So just as an example from my time at IMS, I was doing walking meditation one evening in the forest refuge, which is the long-term retreat facility, And there's a beautiful wildflower meadow there that's overlooked by a Buddha image. And I was walking back and forth towards the Buddha image. And I heard this rustling in the grass, pretty close to my walking path. And when I looked, I saw it was a a large skunk. Now, at first, it took me a while to recognize, because it sort of looked like Rod Stewart's wig on legs. It was this (laughs) shaggy thing with little black feet. It was snuffling along in the in the grass. And when I recognized what it was, I thought, oh, I'd better be careful. It doesn't turn around and spray me. But I just quietly kept walking, and the skunk just quietly kept walking alongside me for the full length of the track. It took about ten minutes. And by the end of the track, I felt this real sense of metta towards the skunk that ordinarily I might have had a bit of a, hmm, Let's move away from that kind of reaction to. So you probably had experiences of your own of being on retreat and feeling more of a sense of connection to the wild creatures around you. And again, not to take this for granted. We want to allow ourselves to settle in to the safety here so that this process of healing the heart can begin and can continue. Now just a quick note about that phrase, healing the heart. It's possible that for some of you that phrase may not resonate. I know for me in the beginning of my practice, I would have thought, yeah. Maybe some of you feel your heart is fine, doesn't need any healing. And maybe for some of you that's true. But again, based on my own experience, being on retreat many years now, and especially in the beginning being very resistant to any talk about the heart, I was still often surprised at what emerged when the conditions are right. When there's a sense of safety, the heart-mind understands that it's being listened to more fully and more kindly 
and it might start to reveal some of the hurts that we ordinarily might not be in contact with. Now that's actually good news because unless we know they're there, we can't do anything to start healing them. So the sense of safety is a powerful support for healing the heart. Likewise, the second component is silence. So the silence is our commitment to the fourth precept, refraining from speaking harshly, falsely, and in the retreat context, maintaining noble silence. Now what makes the noble silence noble is that it's done in support of insight, of clear seeing, supporting the deep freedom of heart and mind. And there are different levels to this silence. So the first, the most obvious one, is to refrain from communicating with each other, either through words or non-verbally. And then the other, to avoid using our mobile phones and other technology. And this is because, as I said last night, the technology, the communication, easily scatters, distracts, fragments the mind. And that gets in the way of deepening our samadhi, our steadiness and stability. And because we are all here practicing together, we have an effect on each other. So perhaps particularly if you're here with a friend or a family member or a partner, it can be good to take extra care just to maintain the silence in relation to them. Likewise with our phones. It may seem harmless enough to send a quick text to a friend, but the ripples of agitation in the mind, they may be subtle, but as our minds become more refined, there's a way that they can be transmitted, more sensitive to each other's energy. So it's a powerful act of kindness to ourselves, to others, to maintain this noble silence as best you can. And when we do that, we start to recognize that as our awareness gets to stops being distracted by all the communication out there, we have more bandwidth to listen to what's going on in here, to listen to our own inner communication more carefully. And often what can be revealed are all the different kinds of self-views and beliefs and constructs and concepts that we bring even to our meditation practice. And these unseen views are often driving how we practice in ways that aren't so helpful. So even at this early stage in the retreat, it's worth learning to recognize some of those underlying motivations that are influencing how we're meditating. So again, based on my own experience and also working with various students, we often have a lot of beliefs about what we think is supposed to be happening in our meditation, what we should be achieving, and what we definitely should not be experiencing. And so these beliefs keep us constantly micromanaging our practice, trying to make our experience more like this and less like that, and to fit more neatly into our model of what we believe good meditation is supposed to look like. 
The bad news is that all of that effort is not only exhausting, it's usually futile. Because the deepest insights actually come from learning how to be with experience exactly as it is, not how we think it should be. So this tuning in to our experience, in some ways we can think of it as a form of listening. And I sometimes think of mindfulness or sati as a form of listening, not just with our ears, but with all our senses, listening with our whole being. And we might start with the actual experience of hearing, but then when we maintain that same receptivity to every other aspect of our experience. So this listening is also a kind of befriending. And so already I've been inviting you to notice what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart and the mind, and to meet whatever that experience is with kindness. So listening and kindness, they support that deepening of the practice. And in turn, we come now to the solitude, the aloneness that we're being invited to here, and to begin to explore the difference between aloneness and loneliness. Now at times they may shade over into each other, they may superficially seem the same, but loneliness is quite a painful state for most people, and it often brings other afflictive emotions with it, such as anxiety or sadness or longing or wanting. With solitude, with aloneness, on the other hand, usually there's a sense of acceptance, completeness, contentment. And so we can orient to that, not through judging any loneliness that might come up, but not fearing that being alone is automatically going to be loneliness. And at first this might seem counterintuitive, because so much of our pleasure in the ordinary world is socially based. And it's true, we are relational beings. And we're capable of offering each other huge happiness through our loving connection. But if we don't bring wisdom to this aspect of our lives, at times we find ourselves investing a lot of emotional energy in trying to get other people to make us happy. And inevitably there are times when we aren't successful. Inevitably there are times when other people let us down. And the patterns of loneliness, despair, desperation, maybe even self-hatred, can be strengthened. So here in the solitude we have an opportunity to really befriend ourselves more fully. Because when we're fully befriending ourselves, we're less reliant, less dependent on getting other people to meet those needs. <coughs> And when we're able to offer kindness and compassion to ourselves, we're much more easily able to offer it to others too. 
So this time that we have here in solitude, it helps to strengthen a healthy kind of self-knowledge, a healthy self-reliance, a healthy completeness. So some of you may know the short haiku poem by from the Zen tradition by the female poet Izumu Shikibu, who apparently lived in the 10th century. And she said, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Maybe tonight we'll be able to see the moon and you might be able to take that in. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So that's perhaps another way of expressing what we're doing here, getting to know ourselves completely, including those parts that at times may be lonely, including perhaps those parts that we don't like, maybe don't even want to acknowledge that are there, that we try to disconnect from. A few years ago, I heard the English monk Ajahn Suchito use the phrase orphans of consciousness. And it struck me that there are these orphans of consciousness. And I thought, wow, I've been running in an orphanage without even realizing it. (laughs) And maybe it's time to offer some parenting to those orphans instead of neglecting them. So, of course, all of us have parts that we perhaps don't want to know so well. But here, in the simplicity of having just our own company, we can start to get to know those parts instead of perhaps the default of reaching for our devices or picking up a good book or calling a friend or going to any of those other habitual strategies that we usually use to distance ourselves from what's difficult. So as an antidote, we can orient to simplicity, which is the fourth of these six supports. And in the poem that I just read, it's the simplicity that gives those few short phrases their power. There's nothing extra there, nothing unnecessary. And it allows us to connect directly to the essence of what the poet is expressing. I think it's fair to say that most of us don't live most of our lives with that kind of simplicity. Usually it's the opposite. We tend to busy ourselves with all kinds of activities and clutter our lives with all kinds of stuff and then wonder why we feel constantly stressed. But in the Buddha's teachings... There's a phrase he used over and over, which when I first heard it made no sense. He talks often about the bliss, the bliss of renunciation. Now in English, those are two words that generally don't go together. And the word renunciation has some pretty seriously negative connotations for a lot of people. But if we think of renunciation as simplicity, it might start to make more sense. Here on retreat, when we can allow ourselves to surrender into the simplicity of what's being offered here, we can start to experience the 
surprisingly profound level of ease, of happiness, of freedom. And a powerful understanding that having all of our sense pleasures satisfied is not the only way to happiness. Now again, this is a very different message from dominant mainstream society, where we tend to get the message that being happy comes from fulfilling our every sense desire and keeping ourselves as comfortable as possible, protecting ourselves from even the slightest unpleasant experience. Now, on one level, it's natural, it's normal to want to be comfortable. And some degree of comfort is necessary for our lives, for our Dharma practice. But learning how much comfort is necessary is an act of wisdom. And here on retreat, we have the opportunity to look at our relationship to comfort and to discomfort and to experiment with the simplicity of renunciation. Now maybe because of our underlying Christian heritage, when most people hear about renunciation, they think it's about giving up things. So giving up chocolate or coffee or sugar or alcohol. But in Buddhism there's a much deeper level of renunciation. Not so much about relinquishing things, but letting go of habits, of attitudes, of views, of beliefs that tend to keep us stuck in the same old way of doing things, the same old way of being. So the American Tibetan Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, some of you know, she talks about this aspect of renunciation in her book, The Places That Scare You. And she says, renunciation does not have to be regarded as negative. I was taught that it has to do with letting go of holding back. What one is renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. So you could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. Renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is, and how vast our potential is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. When we sit in meditation and we feel our breath as it goes out, and we have some sense of willingness just to open to the present moment, then our minds wander off into all kinds of stories and fabrications and manufactured realities. And we just say to ourselves, it's thinking. We say that with a lot of gentleness and precision. And every time we're willing to let the storyline go, every time we let go at the end of the outbreath, that is fundamental renunciation. Letting go of holding on and letting go of holding back. So this is the inner aspect of simplicity, of relinquishment. And it has a close connection to the fifth support, which is slowing down. So again, here on retreat, we have a powerful opportunity to experiment with that. And as a general principle, that the slower you go, the more you know. 
So we can hear the cars zooming along out there at 90 or 100. And we know when we're driving at speed, we miss a lot. If we slow down to 30 or even 15, whole new dimensions of experience start to open up for us. Again, though, especially if you're new to practice, at first this can be challenging. That voluntary slowing down, for some people it brings up resistance. We tend to live more in our heads, and in a digital world that's increasingly very fast. So it's not surprising that when we come on retreat, at first we often have that forward momentum of just zooming around at the usual speed, and we can find ourselves caught up in impatience and restlessness at the slower pace of life here. But as our nervous systems just organically start to adjust to this deeper, different way of being, we really get a taste of how bodily calm supports mental calm and vice versa. And in my own experience of observing in myself and in students, to the extent that we're able to slow down, to that extent our samadhi gets stronger, and to that same extent, uh, the depth of pleasant experience also gets stronger. You could say that bliss again. It's a little bit of a catch-22, though, because if we don't give ourselves the opportunity to slow down enough to taste that deep pleasure, we don't recognize how valuable it is, so we don't slow down so we don't experience it, so we don't slow down. So I just invite you, if you haven't experienced the deepening of samadhi like that, to experiment with it, play with it. See what happens when you let yourself move more slowly than usual. Not in a forced way, but just allow yourself to surrender organically to the quieter, slower pace of life that's available here. That doesn't mean that you have to creep around at a snail's pace the whole time. If we're in the lunch line, maybe you've had this experience of being on retreat behind somebody who's very exquisitely, mindfully reaching and taking their place and very slowly moving, totally oblivious of the 50 people behind them who are waiting to get to the food before it's completely cold. So always we want to have the wisdom there. But that slowness also acts as a feedback mechanism to notice when we're rushing. So when we're surrounded by people who are moving slowly, it's more obvious those times when we ourselves are caught up in impatience or pushing or rushing. So if you notice that, just take a moment to pause, physically stop. Ask yourself what is going on and see if you can find and release that impatience, that tension, and then just surrender to more stillness. So stillness is the last of these qualities. And how powerful it is to recognize that here we don't have to achieve anything. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. There's no one to be. But there is 
simply being, without anyone who's being, being. So now with the stillness, we get, we can surrender to the safety, the silence, the solitude, the simplicity, the slowing down. All of those flow very naturally into stillness. And we put down the constant burden of doing, 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 even doing our meditation. Have you noticed that? Now I have to do my mindfulness. Now I have to do my walking. Now I have to do my job. We bring the same agitated restlessness even to being on retreat. But as we get used to the stillness, it's easier to let go of that agitation. We don't have an image of a Buddha here, but you've probably all seen the classical image of the Buddha sitting very steady, very balanced, and he usually has one hand touching the ground. So he's connecting with the stability, the stillness of the earth beneath him. And he pretty much always has a serene smile. And that, to me, suggests that quiet inner enjoyment that comes when we're fully settled into that stillness. So it can be an acquired taste, though, because we often are so busy, that as we get used to it, it becomes more and more of a true refuge. And what we're doing here on retreat is not simply escapism, not simply running away from the world, as sometimes people think. They can see going on retreat even as a kind of self-indulgence. But actually what we're doing here is taking the outer conditions, bringing them more and more fully into our hearts and minds, learning to abide in that stillness and simplicity and steadiness and so on, so that when we return to the world, we're taking that inner refuge with us, taking those heart qualities into our everyday lives. So I seem to have lost the final page. Oh no, here it is. I wanted to share you with um, this understanding of, for some people, the idea of stillness at first is a little unnerving because we usually are so agitated and overstimulated. And so when we first touch into that profound peace, sometimes there's a little bit of a backlash or a sense of feeling unnerved or even groundless. So for me it was helpful to hear that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's usually translated as meditation, it literally means getting used to it. And I like that. We can think of meditation as getting used to it, whatever it might be. And at times that it might be the sense of being in new, unfamiliar, even slightly uncomfortable territory. So coming back to Pema Chodron again, I think she describes some of these states quite brilliantly. She says, when we meditate, we're creating a situation in which there's a lot of space. That sounds good, but actually it can be unnerving. Because when there's a lot of space, you can see very clearly. You've removed your veils, your shields, your armor, 
your dark glasses, your earplugs, your layers of mittens and heavy boots. And finally you're standing, touching the earth, feeling the sun on your body, feeling its brightness, hearing all of the noises without anything to dull the sound. And since meditation has this quality of bringing you very close to yourself and your experience, you tend to come up against your edge faster. It's not an edge that wasn't there before, but because things are so simplified and clear, you see it, and you see it vividly and clearly. And often, when you realize you've met your edge, you can think, I have made a mistake. But instead, you can acknowledge the present moment and its teaching. You can hear the message, which is simply that you're saying no, and instead, soften, connect with your heart, and engender a basic attitude of generosity and compassion to yourself. So here again we have the support of dana, of generosity, that I mentioned last night as a strategy to help soften the resistance. So we have generosity, we have compassion, and self-compassion, which we'll be coming to later in the retreat. So I just want to encourage all of us, including me, to make the most of this precious opportunity to be here on retreat. As we know, perhaps even more than previous retreats, it feels sort of hard won that we got to be here. And so the more we can abide in the refuge that's offered here, the stronger our inequalities become. And it's these resources of wisdom and compassion that are what we take with us when we eventually leave here as an offering not only to ourselves but to a world that so desperately needs more wisdom, more compassion. So may we all use this period of refuge to see clearly so that we can release our suffering, our stress, our distress heal the heart, refine the mind, and find freedom. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.